We are <clears throat> shifting gears. We are in the last teaching on the book of Matthew today. Uh, next week we'll have a little community response time where we're kind of uh, sharing again what God has been teaching us over this year. We started in September. We went all the way until here the end of June. And it has flown by. I mean, I have absolutely loved being in the book of Matthew. And uh, <clears throat> I said even to Kevin this morning, Kevin said, hey, would you ever go through a book again for as long as we went through this book? And I said, I, I think I'm ready to start Matthew again. Like, it was so good, and it was so life-changing for me, uh, even just digging into it and learning from this gospel that, like, man, we could, we could go back in and teach for another 20 weeks on this because it is filled with so much, so much material, so much information, so much, I think, inspiration. Um, and so this week I've been just thinking quite a bit about this is the last teaching on Matthew. And there's, uh, I guess maybe I feel this weight to say, okay, if you're going to conclude what the whole gospel of Matthew has to say, how are you going to wrap it up? Because I've always been intrigued by people's last speeches. Maybe the last address they give to a group of people or the last time that they ever utter certain words. I don't know if you're like me in that, but there's this understanding that I think sometimes we as people save our best for last. I mean, that's what I do with my dessert. I save it for the end, and it's like the thing that finishes off the meal. Or we, was, as it comes to things that we communicate to people, we tend to want to save the best for last. We want to save the most important point for the end. I mean, I do that in arguments. Right? You like save the zinger for the very end. And then to top it off, this is the last thing that I have to say. And you just emphasize, right, the main point at the end. Or maybe you did a graduation speech recently or you heard one recently. And it's, they want to kind of end with that resounding finish. Like this is, this is good. This is what you need to be reminded of. Um, I have just always had this kind of interest in last speeches. In fact, when I was uh, doing an internship just outside of Cincinnati in a church, first church really that I was a part of in terms of being on staff, I was about, I think, 19 or 20 years old, and um, the staff came to me and said, you, can, you, you get to speak at this service coming up in a couple of weeks, and you could speak on anything. That's kind of scary. I prefer like people just to go speak on this and then I can figure it out. But like you're talking the whole Bible. I can choose anything. And for a 19-year-old, that's kind of daunting because there's certain things that your whole life you've been going, oh, I want to say this to the church, but probably shouldn't. And then other things <laughs> that you just go, man, I, I don't even know what to say in this moment. And I remember thinking back that the thing that I went to is Joshua's last speech to the people of Israel, where he had been leading them for years. He took over after Moses. He transitioned the people into the promised land, and he says to them, listen, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, for the rest of my life, we will serve the Lord. And then he begins to kind of lay out for them, like, listen, you need to pursue God. Not only that, you need to raise up the next generation to follow him. That you need to be the kind of fathers and mothers that actually teach their kids what it means to follow Yahweh. 
and to live it out in your own life. And I just hear those words and I, I just, man, the last thing he says to the people is that. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the, um, the book and the video online called The Last Lecture. How many of you are familiar with that? So a professor uh, in, at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and kind of knew he was coming toward the end of the semester and also toward the end of his life. And so he prepared what he called his last lecture. And he crammed as much information in uh, that really just spoke, not only to the students, but I think spoke to people worldwide. I'd encourage you to read the book. Uh, It's just fascinating because I think a lot of times our final speech says a lot about who we are. Or our final speech or our final teaching says a lot about what we value or what we think is important. One of my good friends is actually a mentor of mine, and I would consider him to be one of the people that influenced me in a significant way toward being in ministry. He was the pastor that I worked with when I was just outside of Cincinnati. And uh, just recently, uh, he gave his last lecture. I was able to listen to it online. He, about three months ago, was diagnosed with ALS. And uh, he knows that uh, it is progressing quickly. And uh, I listened to his last address to his church uh, just a couple weeks ago, where he said, these are the things that if I could say anything at the end, this is what I would say. And uh, powerful, because what we say at the end tends to be the things that are most important. What I want to do this morning is look at what Jesus says right at the very end, because I think in the same way what he says to us at the end of this book and at the end of his teaching is some of the most important stuff. So if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 28. What I want to do is just remind you of a few things that uh, I think were highlighted throughout the book of Matthew that find themselves stated very clearly here at the end of Matthew. Matthew chapter 28, it's a passage that all of us are familiar with. It's a passage that we have looked at before even during our time uh, in this Series Matthew chapter 28, if you look at verse 16, it says this, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Skipping down to verse 18, it says, And Jesus came to them and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now let me pause there for a second. That's a pretty amazing statement if you think about it. I think sometimes we gloss over it. He says, all authority. Now this isn't just like a, you know, I was at sixth grade graduation the other day. My, that's, I'm getting old. My daughter graduates from sixth grade and the principal's up front and he's saying, you know, by the power of me as a principal, by my authority, I get to say some of these things to sixth graders, right? Now, God isn't just going, hey, is my authority as an elementary principal here? He says, my authority in heaven and in the entire earth has been given to me. And so I declare these things to you. And here's what he says. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them 
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I want to highlight three things in the text, just really briefly, that I think uh, speak and kind of summarize this book, but also declare what I think is Christ's main point, main ideas for us in discipleship. The first one is this. Discipleship in Matthew is on the move. The discipleship in Matthew is on the move. Now, the reason this is so important is because I think Jesus gives us a clear indication that discipleship always assumes and probably just flat out requires movement. It requires us to be going somewhere. He says right at the very beginning, go. Be active, be moving. This is not about being static or stationary. This is about moving somewhere, going somewhere. Now what's interesting, and I've probably showed you this before, but if you look at this particular text and you break it down, there are four main ideas right in this little phrase. Go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them, right? Three of them are participles. One of them is the main verb. The main verb, the main idea to this text is make disciples. That's the very thing that all of us are called to do. That once we become a disciple, we are called to then go and make other disciples. What's interesting in the Greek, and this is different in English, but in the Greek, you could put the participles anywhere you want. You could put all three of them before the main verb. You could put all three of them afterwards. You could divide them out however you want. But what's interesting is Jesus divides them this way. He states, go first, follows it with the verb, and then adds two more ideas to it. He could have easily said, make disciples. Make disciples is so important, and do it as you're going Do it while you baptize. Do it as you teach. But instead, he does it this way. The reason I believe that's the case is because he wants all of us not to miss this point. He wants all of us to understand that mission, discipleship, the calling that all of us has requires movement. It requires us to be active. It's not just something that's to be believed. It's something that is to be lived. It's something that we're required to act upon, to live out. I mean, the Bogues are a perfect example of what I think of when I think of this idea of going. Not just because they went across the world, but because they were willing to say, you know what, I'm going to put my job on hold and I'm going to step out. Or I'm going to put my relationships on hold and I'm going to step out. I'm going to have my family here, and I'm going to step away. I'm going to have my grandkids here. I'm not a granddad yet, but I understand that that's like you raised the bar a little higher right then. And they go, no, we're going to, we're going to leave them behind for a season as well. Because there's this understanding that there's a movement that all of us are called to go. That we're to be active. Part of why I think this is the case, part of why I think Jesus makes this a point, isn't just because of how it affects other people when we go, but because I think of how it affects us when we go. I know that whenever I'm stationary in my faith, whenever I'm sitting down with, on the job, so to speak, 
there isn't a movement that's happening in me. And part of why God calls us to this is not just because of what it does for the other, but what it does for us. You can't help but notice the bogues up front as they're sharing. Both of them were brought to tears by the movement. Both of them were brought to tears because of the investment. Because they realize, as we should realize, that discipleship has to be embodied and it has to be on the move. The second one is this. Discipleship requires obedience. Discipleship requires obedience. Look at Matthew chapter 28 again. There's a little phrase that says this. Teaching them to observe or obey all that I have commanded you. Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. See, in Jesus' last lecture, the last thing that he says to his disciples, this is after the resurrection, he declares this truth, and then the scriptures tell us that he ascends back to heaven. So the last thing that he communicates is this. And he says, obedience has to be a part of discipleship. It has to be. Teaching them to observe or to follow or to obey all that I have commanded. I came across this quote about a year or two ago. It says this, God demands right behavior more than anything else, including right ritual and right belief. I first read it and I went, well, I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that. I don't know, maybe you see it and right away you go, oh, absolutely, I totally believe with that. But sometimes I like to read things and go, oh, I, don't, I don't know. And then I think back to, back to the time in the Old Testament where he says, hey, to obey is better than sacrifice. I could care less if you go through this routine of coming to church. I could care less if you go through this routine of praying or of reading your Bible or doing these. If there isn't obedience, then it shows me where you really are at. And then I go, well, but yeah, but right belief. There has to be right belief, right? Right belief is what leads to right action. And yet, oftentimes, right action shows what it is we believe. And so maybe the statement is true. So I started thinking, okay, is there anywhere else in this gospel where Jesus says, you know what? Action and obedience is so important. And I found, I found it in the Sermon on the Mount. Many of you remember this amazing teaching of Jesus. We know it's super important because it's in red letters, right? It's, it's one of the most significant teachings in all of Matthew. And some would say, most would argue, that it is the greatest sermon ever preached. Jesus walks through. All of these things. He talks about the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are you if you're like this, because yours is the kingdom of heaven. Then he starts to walk through what it looks like to be a follower of him. He says, some of you say it's about murder, and I say, no, it's about hate. Some of you say it's about adultery, and I say, no, it's about lust. Some of you say that it's just about loving God, and I go, no, it's also about loving your neighbor. And some of you say that you want and you worry about life here, and I say, no, put my kingdom first, and everything else will be added. And he goes through this whole list of things. And what's interesting, if this theory is true, that you save the best for last, Jesus ends 
the greatest sermon ever. And this is how he ends it. He tells a little story at the very end about a wise builder and a foolish builder. You know, we saw it like in flannel grass and wise man built his house upon the rock. Foolish man, sand, rains came down. You know, some of you have been there, right? And the floods came up, right? So you, you, have this, you have this story, right? And he ends with that. And I go, wait, time out. Why would you end with that? I mean, you'd want to end with an emphatic statement at the end. You'd want to go, you'd want to drive home the point and just wrap it all up and say, I've just been talking for hours. Let me finish by saying this. If you haven't heard anything, you've heard speakers do this before. If you miss everything else I've said, don't miss this, right? And he ends with this story. So let's look at it for a second. Matthew seven twenty four to 27 it says this. I'll have it up on the screen. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and when the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Now what's the point that Jesus is making in this text? See, growing up on the flanographs and in the little songs, I thought it meant build your life on the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Build everything on Him because He's the rock. And, and whatever house you build, if it's on the right foundation, you're going to be good, right? And whatever house that you build, even if it looks the same as your neighbor's house, even if it has the exact same building supplies, even if the exact same storm comes and the exact same rain and the exact same floods and everything's the same, but you notice the foundation is different. But what's interesting is Jesus doesn't talk about this as if, hey, I'm the foundation here and the world and all of its thinking is the foundation here. Remember, that's how I always heard it growing up. What Jesus says is this, the foundation is obedience. Anyone who hears these words of mine and does them, puts them into practice, lives them out, obeys them, follows them, follows through on what he hears, doesn't just have good intentions, doesn't just think good thoughts about it, doesn't just like what I have to say, but actually does it. He is like the man on the rock. Anyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't do them, ignores them, doesn't follow through, doesn't care, doesn't seem to be bothered by them, doesn't care about their importance, doesn't live into what I've called them to do, his house is on the sand. That's pretty strong teaching. I mean, he drives home the point. And I think the point he's driving home is a point that we in the church often forget. Or we kind of like try to subtly get around. And that is that you cannot separate obedience from following Jesus. You cannot separate obedience from faith. You cannot divorce obedience from discipleship. See, Dallas Willard said this, 
The missing note in evangelical life today is not in the first instance spirituality, but rather obedience. We've generated a variety of religion to which obedience is not regarded as essential. I don't understand how anyone can look ingenuously at the contents of the scripture and say that Jesus intends anything else for us but obedience. See, the Gospel of Matthew is strong on this point, on doing the will of God, on keeping His commands, of bearing fruit. You see it all throughout the text. It's heavy on action. If you look through Matthew, again and again you hear these, that only those who do the will of the Father will be in heaven. Or you hear the parable of the two sons. The one who did what the Father asked was commended. The one who didn't wasn't. Or you hear things like enter by the narrow gate requiring movement. You hear the road or the way, the journey. You hear that over and over. And then you hear things like bearing fruit, which implies growth and change. That something happens in us that bears fruit out of us. That something changes on the inside that brings forth action on the outside. That's why Kevin last week, was talking about this idea. And he said that the importance in Matthew seems to be, <clears throat> excuse me, on orthopraxis, right? That it's our orthopraxy, our practice of, or our actions of, that demonstrate more than what it is we believe, our orthodoxy. The reason that was so emphasized in Matthew 25, and the reason we talked about it so much last week, is because... You can't divorce the two. You can't just have right beliefs, think right thoughts, and then assume everything's good if there is no action. Matthew over and over says, the action shows the belief. It's the actions that test the authenticity of the words. Matthew drives home that point, and I think Jesus drives home that point. In his last lecture, the third and final one is this. Discipleship implies presence. Discipleship implies presence. Matthew 28, at the very end, the very last words of Jesus in this text. I am with you always until the end of the age. He says, I am with you always. Now my assumption in him saying this is a couple things. One... If we are active in our going, and two, if we are obeying through thick and thin, if we are engaging in mission, and if we are practicing making disciples, it can be a lonely business, and it can be a tough business. And I think what Jesus is saying is, when you do that, I'm with you. When you do that, don't forget, I'm always present. And there's something about the significance of presence. There's something about doing something with someone else. Everything's better, I think, when it's with someone else, right? There's higher highs when you're with someone else. There's not as significant lows when you're with someone else. There's, there's this beauty in being with someone. My mom is an identical twin. And uh, because she's an identical twin, she grew up, uh, I mean, connected at the hip with her sister. 
I mean, they even dressed alike. I saw these pictures growing up of them being dressed alike up until a certain age. And uh, the, everything about them is, like, better when they're with each other. I mean, family is great, but when those two get connected, it's like something amazing happens. They've got this, like, sick telepathy thing, too. I, honestly, I don't know if you've been around twins at all, but, like, my mom's like, oh, my shoulder's hurting, you know, growing up. That, honestly, she'd be like, it hurts so bad, I don't understand why, I didn't do anything to it. And then, like, her sister would have, like, had a really bad shoulder injury the same day. And I'm like, this is weird. They would, uh, this is before cell phones, they would, they would dial, you know, like, spin, you know, and pick up the phone, right? And the way it worked is my mom, literally, would be dialing the phone. And as, like, she dials the last number and the connection's starting to go through, she holds it up. There's no ring on the other end, and there's no ring on her end, and it's like, hello? And it's them talking. <laughs> that is weird, right? So there's this understanding that the two of them, when they're together, it is, is better than you can imagine. And I, I started thinking, why is that the case? And I think it's because my mom knows that her sister understands her better than anybody else. That, not only that, that her sister knows what she's thinking even before she says it. That her sister feels what she feels. That her sister is present with her. I think those same things are true with us. There's something unique about a God who feels what we feel who knows what we're thinking even before we say it, who understands us better than we even understand ourselves. And Jesus is that. And He says, I'm present with you. The heart of the Gospel and the heart of this teaching, in many ways, of this book, is perhaps that God is with us, being the most significant. What's interesting is Jesus starts the book And it's declared of him right at the beginning. There's this son that will be born to you, and you will call him Emmanuel, which means what? God with us, right? So right at the very beginning of the book, he says, I'm with you. My very name, my very essence, my very being is with you. And then finishes it with, I will never leave you. I am with you constantly. And maybe everything that's written in between is really about what discipleship and mission looks like with Jesus. Everything that is contained within the book really is speaking to what it means to follow Him when He's right next to us. So Jesus finishes His final teaching in this Gospel by saying, discipleship implies movement. It requires it. That we're going to be active, we're going to be on the move, we're going to be on the go. And not only that, it requires obedience. That if we're really going to be disciples, it means we must follow Jesus and follow His teaching. And then last, that as we go, and as we're involved in discipleship and mission, that He's always present. And that His presence makes everything better. Let me pray and then remind you at the same time next week 
Uh, we're going to be wrapping up the book of Matthew uh, as we hear from you. What has God been sharing with you, teaching you, reminding you of as we've been going through this book together? So come prepared to share. Let me pray.